Hello there, and welcome back to Northway's D-Group Podcast. I am your host, Rodney Mills, and I'm so glad that you stopped by to visit. Over the last few weeks, we've been challenged to the core on what it means to be a disciple of Christ, to apprentice our lives to Him. This is His invitation to us and the command He gives to all of us, that we are called to be His disciples so we can make more disciples. I do hope you're beginning to think that way, that you are at some point in the not-so-distant future going to disciple other people, maybe even have your own D-group. Now, we first looked closely at the gospel accounts, and we determined that a, a disciple of Christ is a person who is willing to give up their preconceived ideas of what life is all about, to abandon their previous way of living, immersing themselves into the way, the truth, and the life of the master in order to be like Christ. And so what I've done is I've taken a a week-by-week process of laying out a vision of what the life of a disciple can look like. And so I want to reflect on that vision for a moment as sort of a refresher. You'll remember, perhaps, most importantly, that Jesus' invitation to us is to citizenship in his kingdom, that that was his gospel message, God's kingdom or that realm where God reigns and in his, he's in action for the good of his people. That's available to anyone who calls upon him. That is the gospel of the kingdom. You can live a life in this kingdom of the heavens in the here and now. It's going to take a radical reorientation of how you've been thinking, though. So repent, metanoia. The kingdom of God is where what God wants to be done is being done, where the will of God, the loving action of God on behalf of his people, it's made manifest in the world. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this radical shift in Jesus' message about the kingdom was how open this kingdom was to anyone and everyone. He rattled the religious elite by suggesting that this kingdom message was available to those who were rejected, unacceptable, people unclean because of their sickness and diseases, those who were thought to be cursed because they were poor. He didn't just preach it either. He he lived it out completely, from prostitutes to lepers, from little children to poor widows, from tax collectors to Roman soldiers, from a Samaritan woman to his worst enemies. Jesus showed just how available the king of glory is to those who will call upon his name. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here now. You don't have to wait any longer. In a nutshell, the gospel of the kingdom is the availability of life now in the kingdom of God by placing our confidence in Jesus as Lord of all. So what does life now in the kingdom look like? And that's what we're learning here, what it means to love, live, and lead like Jesus. He's the master, and we're learning from him about what life in this kingdom is all about. Now, we've spent the last few weeks talking about what it means to love like Jesus, that it's rooted in perfect, trinitarian, agape love, that we've been invited into a whole new way of relating to the people in our lives and in the world. You've got to master your understanding of that word, agape, that selfless love, a love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. Of course, we went on to present the idea that love, joy, and peace should be our default disposition if we are abiding in Christ, and that compassion should fill our hearts as we begin to see people the way Christ sees them, and that forbearance and forgiveness should be the dominant dimensions of agape love, even with our enemies. I've 
presented a model to sort of visualize what this ever-flowing stream of love looks like. Accepting his invitation into the community of love represented in the Trinity. Trusting in him alone as your sole sufficiency. Selflessly loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Compassionately giving to the hurting and disoriented. Even extending loving forbearance and forgiveness to your enemies, past and present. That's what it looks like to love like Jesus. You see, in one way or another, everyone in your life, from family to fellow classmates to co-workers, from the people easiest to love to the ones hardest to even like, they are all represented in that demonstration, that, that illustration of those multiple circles. And selfless agape love, a love that desires the best for every one of them, is to become the characterizing quality of our interactions with them as we live out our lives under the reign of Christ, abiding in his love and in his word. So we have this powerful vision of the kingdom of God that is made available to us now. And as we've observed the life and teachings of Jesus, we have a clear vision of how life in the kingdom is to be lived out as we're loving God and loving people. But it's one thing to have a vision of the kingdom, to know that the aim of our life should be characterized by selfless and sacrificial love, but it is a a very different thing to actually live it out. Now, our responses to our enemies are often not very loving. We do pass by on the other side of the road far too often, and we don't slow down with compassion for those who are wounded. We actually don't engage enough with those who are disoriented to God's way of living so we can show them the way. Our light is often not very bright, and our salt doesn't do much for changing the flavor of life for very many people. Clearly, there is often a disconnect between the beautiful vision of life in the kingdom that Jesus presents and the one we actually live. So what gives? Why is it so hard? Well, we need to look no further than to our master teacher to show us the way. He doesn't leave us hanging here. If we're apprenticing our whole lives to him, then by observing the way he lived his life, by studying the rhythms and the patterns of his life, we can identify the source of his success and strength in living out the kingdom vision. He actually shows us, almost step by step, how to abide in the Father's love and in his word. He is the ultimate example in teaching how to practice the presence of God. So go with me on a journey through the Gospels for a few moments, and let's see what we might discover about how to live like Jesus. In Luke 4, we see how one Sunday, Jesus had an incredibly full day of ministry. From early in the morning until the evening, He was teaching in the synagogue. He was healing Simon's mother-in-law and performing many miracles. And so on Monday morning, Jesus went out for a time of solitude and silence. Here it is from Luke 4, verse 42. Early the next morning, Jesus went out to an isolated place. The crowd searched for him everywhere, and when they finally found him, they begged him not to leave them. Now, That's Luke's account, but Mark records that for us as well and gives us a a few more details about what Jesus was doing out there in isolation. This is Mark 135. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. In Matthew 14, when Jesus heard of the death of his cousin, John the baptizer, 
He left by boat to be alone in what the ESV calls a desolate place. The crowds heard about him and they followed him on foot. And this is the scene where Jesus has great compassion on them, and he performed many miracles. And by evening, there's nothing to eat, and we get the story of the feeding of 5,000. So again, a long and emotionally draining day. Matthew records Jesus' next movements for us. This is from Matthew 14, verse 22. As soon as the meal was finished, he insisted that the disciples get in the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the people. And with the crowd dispersed, he climbed the mountain so he could be by himself and pray. He stayed there alone late into the night. So then now we go to Luke chapter 5, and we see that Jesus heals a leper and tells him not to say anything about it. Well, it didn't do much good. Luke says in Luke 5.15, but the news about him spread even more, and large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Yet, he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. (laughs) Pastor Peterson interprets it that as often as possible, Jesus withdrew to out-of-the-way places for prayer. And you see, the, the closer we look, the more it all starts to add up. You can see a definite rhythm to how Jesus lived his life. The gospel writers make sure we know not just about all his powerful teachings and miracles, We don't hear just about walking on water and raising people from the dead. We see that in between all the work of spreading the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus has a rhythm of spiritual practices. Interestingly, we often see them preceding or immediately after times of intense ministry. It was as if these practices of solitude and silence and prayer actually connected the ministry times together that they were even key to sustaining and fueling Jesus to do the work of the ministry. And you see, if we're truly going to apprentice our lives to Jesus, we not only need to understand what to do in public, but perhaps even more importantly, we have to learn to live as he did in private and behind the scenes. Now, we've already seen him in these practices of solitude and silence and prayer, but these aren't the only practices we see him engaging in either. In Luke 4, we see one of the most important scenes in Jesus' life. This is the widely known story of the temptation of Christ. It, It happens immediately after his baptism and just prior to the launching of his public ministry. So this is an absolute crucial and pivotal moment in his life. You're probably pretty familiar with the story, but let's make a few key observations. This is verse 1 from Luke chapter 4. Then Jesus left the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. So the first thing we notice here is that before Jesus went about doing his work, even he went into spiritual preparation or training. Now, Jesus is the Son of God, right? I mean, I mean, he's one of the three persons making up the Trinity itself. And yet, we see him going into a season of preparation. And could it be that the reason we struggle to live the kingdom life, and we struggle to live it to its fullest even, is that we step out into the world unprepared, 
We know we're supposed to be loving and forgiving and kind. We know we should set aside anger and malice, that we should have no part in gossip or lying. We know that we're not to retaliate with our enemies, and we're to be on the lookout even for those in need to offer sacrificial compassion, and yet that is not the way we live our lives, and it's certainly not the way it looks to onlookers. Could it be that we're trying to run the marathon without putting in the necessary training? Oh, maybe we have our perfectly matched running outfit. We, we may think we have the best shoes money can buy. We may have even attended a few workshops on the benefits of running. And yet, we've not put in the training, which is the only thing that can ensure an even remote possibility of finishing the race. See, the gospel writers have let us in on what I believe to be one of the most important dynamics of kingdom living. Jesus himself demonstrates for us how important these spiritual practices are for fruitful living. Uh, Notice a few more important points here in this story in the wilderness. We see that he was led by the Spirit and full of the Spirit. That spiritual practices are something we do but are only made effective as the Spirit works within us. And we'll come back to that in just a few moments. We also pick up on a couple of other important spiritual practices here. Uh, it, It would be hard not to notice that a part of his training was that he fasted. Fasting is, as Richard Foster puts it, it's a reminder of the source of all nourishment. And Jesus even assumed that we would follow that example. In Matthew chapter 6, he's giving instructions about how to fast. And he says it two times, when you fast, not if you fast. Now, of course, at the end of his fast, Satan comes to tempt Jesus. Uh, Verse 2 says he ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. And so the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone. And Satan goes on to tempt him two more times, of course, you probably know this, and, and Jesus responds all three times by quoting Scripture. And here we can see that long before he was tempted, Jesus filled his mind with Scripture. This shows that Jesus stayed ready and prepared by memorizing and meditating on Scripture. Friend, the decision to resist temptation is made long before the temptation is faced. And the power to resist comes from readying yourself long before that temptation comes. And this is the difference between trying to do the right thing versus training to do the right thing. And then even notice this little verse near the end of the storytelling. Now, this is verse 13. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. You see, evidently, the enemy looks for times of weakness in our lives. That's why it's important to always stay ready. And what was the outcome of this season of preparation and training? Well, we we can see it very clearly. Look at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. So we see that after spiritual training, Jesus was empowered by the Spirit. And this is key, because strength on the field at game time is gained in the weeks and the months way before the game. It's in the gym, repeating the necessary training to build muscle and endurance. And Jesus shows us the way to live in his strength by placing our lives in his hands through repeated spiritual practices. His spirit empowers us to live out the lives we were meant to live. 
Oh, we can learn so much about these practices if we just pay close attention to the life of Christ. Very quickly, let me just give you a few more observations. Uh, before Jesus made his biggest decisions, he went into a time of intense prayer. We see this in Luke 6. One day soon after Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. And at daybreak, he called together all his disciples, and he chose 12 of them to be apostles. How much prayer do we devote to our biggest decisions? I mean, really? I mean, do we ever pray all night? I mean, I know this was a particularly big decision, picking out 12 apostles. After all, the the disciples are the ones responsible for us being here today. But still, can we learn to apprentice our prayer lives to Jesus? We can also see that after intense season of work, he went into spiritual recovery. We see this in Mark chapter 6, that the apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. And then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. Yeah, rest and quiet is a spiritual practice. And Jesus says that rest may even include times with our friends. Perhaps a a retreat is what we would call it in our time. Can you begin to see this, that that Jesus had a rhythm to his life? I mean, yes, it was a, a life rhythm that included the spectacular and riveting display of God's glorious gospel, demonstrations of loving kindness to whosoever will may come, healing the broken, wounded, and hurting. But it was also a rhythm that included the quiet, the restoration of solitude, the healing of rest with friends, and intimacy with the Father through extended seasons of prayer and fasting, the meditation on the life-giving words of the Bible, and much, much more. You see, the question is, will we accept his invitation to give our lives over completely to his way, to his rhythm, to his spiritual practices that lead to life-giving fruitfulness? I mean, it is possible, you know. I mean, you may resist the notion in our fast-paced 21st century world, but it is completely doable. you got to remember one of our key verses in this study from Luke 6. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. And as a disciple of Christ, apprenticing our whole lives to him, we learn to be like him as we go into training. And this rhythm of life we see in Jesus is a major part of the training process. Paul would go on to talk about this later in his encouragement to Timothy. This is 1 Timothy 4. Train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Train yourself in godliness. Listen to Pastor Peterson's take. Exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. Workouts in, in the gymnasium are useful. But a disciplined life in God is far more so, making you fit both today and forever. Man, that's a powerful way of saying it. Exercise daily in God, a disciplined life in God. Now keep in mind, though, that the objective is to engage in a rhythm of practices that allow God to do the inner work of transformation. He's the one that does the work. We're simply giving him access to our inner life to do the work. I love the way Ruth Haley Barton puts it, and you've likely even heard me use this quote before. In the end, this is the most hopeful thing any of us can say about spiritual transformation, 
I cannot transform myself, or anyone else for that matter. What I can do is create the conditions in which spiritual transformation can take place by developing and maintaining a rhythm of spiritual practices that keep me open and available to God. Now, here's our objective in this conversation today. Spiritual transformation happens as we do our cooperative work with the Holy Spirit to be internally transformed so that our automatic outward responses to life are in alignment with Christ. That's our big idea for this week, so let me say it again. Spiritual transformation happens as we do our cooperative work with the Holy Spirit to be internally transformed so that our automatic outward responses to life are in alignment with Christ. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. I mean, you ever get in a pressured situation or maybe an argument and you quickly say things you wish you hadn't said? You ever wonder where those things come from? Well, Jesus says it comes from your heart. And actually, I don't think it's much of a stretch to suggest that all of our automatic responses to life flow from the heart. Your attitudes, your work ethic, your patience or impatience, your submission to authority, all of these and so much more flow from your inner life, whether you realize it or not. And spiritual practices combined with the work of the Holy Spirit is the path Jesus lays out for us that leads to transformation of your heart and ultimately leading to deeper levels of agape love for God and other people. And the end result is a transformation of character into Christ-likeness. Friend, I'm telling you, if you're tired of all the ups and downs in your walk of faith, if you know the way you're supposed to selflessly and sacrificially love and yet you don't, if your life is still characterized by anger and insults, a lack of patience, a lack of peace, if your eyes still wander in lust, if you still lack self-control, the answer is not to simply try harder It's to train smarter. You're in need of a reformation of the heart that comes from cultivating a disciplined life in God. And here are the questions that you've got to ask yourself. How bad do I want it? Am I willing to rearrange my life for what my heart most wants? I mean, look, I get it. Life can be crazy busy. We have a lot of obligations. Our everyday activities are physically and mentally taxing. So to think about adding even more items into our schedule seems daunting and maybe even hopeless. But listen, one of the greatest temptations of the spiritual life is to believe that if I were in another season of life, I could be more spiritual. But if the aim of your life is to be like Christ, if you've chosen to seek first the kingdom of God, if you've chosen the narrow gate that leads to life, then following the lead of Christ, rebuild the rhythms of your life to match His. Now, it's pretty safe to assume that as you've been a part of these D groups, you've already been developing what we've called a, a rule of life. You already have a rhythm of reflective Bible-based prayer. You probably are pretty committed to Sunday morning attendance, worshiping with your church family. You see, whether you've really even thought about it, you already have a rhythm to your Christ life. But I want to challenge you to take it even further and maybe even formalize your rule of life in the weeks ahead. Next week, I'm going to take some time to review just a few more of the common spiritual practices used throughout the ages. There really is no complete list, 
But in your groups over the next few weeks, your leaders will also be given out some assignments to experiment with some of those practices one or two at a time. And then after all that, you'll be able to craft a document of sorts that outlines what you think will be your typical daily, weekly, monthly, and even annual intentions for practicing the presence of God in a wide variety of ways. But for this week, I want to challenge you to download what we're calling a spiritual inventory. You'll find it with the show notes for this episode. And what you'll be doing is keeping a a daily record for the next week or so of your every activity you participate in that you would consider a spiritual practice of some kind. Now, of course, that includes your daily prayer times and attending church, but don't rule out other less obvious things as well. Uh, Even an evening with friends or family could be considered a spiritual activity if you're intentional to consider how God is present, how his grace is active, even how his agape love is obvious as you exchange laughter and conversation. I've included a sample of my own from a few years back, so maybe that'll help. Now look, this, this exercise is not meant to be a burden. I just want you to see all the activities you're already engaged with as we move forward toward developing that rule of life. I'm praying for you this week, friend. I'm so proud of your commitment. Just keep pressing on toward the prize of the high calling we have in Christ. Let His Spirit continue to reshape your heart so your automatic responses to life look more and more like Jesus. Jesus.